grace, mercy, and peace be yours in abundance, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus the Lord. Amen. The evangelist Mark knew how to make a point subtly. You can see this in the way he depicts the disciples. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are people who never really understand who Jesus is and what God had sent him to do. But Mark doesn't come out and say this. Rather, he depicts it. This happens, that happens, and pretty soon it all adds up. This happens, for instance. Jesus and disciples are in a boat, and no one brings along the bread. And on the trip, Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples think to himself, he's saying this because we forgot the bread. And Jesus knows what they're thinking and says, don't you understand? Are you hard of heart? Do you have eyes and not see, ears and not hear? Don't you remember? When I took the five loaves and fed the 5,000, how many baskets of stuff were left over? Twelve. When I fed the 4,000 with the seven loaves, how much stuff was left over? Seven baskets. How is it that you don't understand yet? Well, they didn't get it. Or that happens. Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus transfigured on the mountain, and as they descend, Jesus tells them not to say anything until he's risen from the dead, and they ask themselves, what does that mean? This happens, that happens, pretty soon it all adds up, and you know these guys not only don't get it, they never will. That's why they fled when he, Jesus was arrested. That's why they hid when Jesus was crucified. Mark knew how to make his point subtly. This explains why, in some episodes, there's a story put right inside, inserted right in there. For instance, uh, the Beelzebub story. Scribes come from Jerusalem and say that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Jesus, Jesus challenges them with that. He says, that makes no sense. Satan casting out Satan, and then he warns them. If you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, well, that's unforgivable. And Mark adds, he said that because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were denying that Jesus had the Holy Spirit. They denied that in Jesus the power and the presence of the Spirit of God was at work. Well, that itself, of course, is pretty heavy stuff. But Mark puts this story in the middle of another story, the story about Jesus and his family. Jesus' family has heard about Jesus, and they think he's out of his mind, and they decide to do something about it. We'll go get Jesus. We'll bring him home. It's at that point Mark switches to this story about Jesus, the scribes, and Beelzebub. And then when Jesus' mother and his brothers get there, well, what does Jesus say about them? Well, in fact, they're not the real family. Those who hear, those who believe, those who do the will of God. They're his real mother, brothers, and sisters. And so you learn not only that 
Yeah, Jesus came in the presence and power of the Spirit. And if you deny that, you're going to go to hell. But that even his family was in a dangerous place. A very dangerous place. And that rather we should believe the gospel, acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, hear his word, do his will, trust in him in all things. Well, the story about the beheading of John the Baptist is another one of those stories. A story in a story. The lectionary didn't get that, so I'll supply it for you. If they had been thinking about this, it would have gone something like this. Jesus has healed Jairus' daughter, and then he heads home. He's at home, and on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and begins to teach, and everybody knows who he is, and that's the problem. Isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that the brother of James, Joseph, oh, what's his name? Simon. Yeah, what is this guy doing? They know who he is, but they really don't know who he is. They don't acknowledge him as the Son of God. They don't acknowledge him as the Christ. They don't believe. And Jesus marvels at their unbelief, but he's not deterred. Off he goes to another village, to another town, preaching and teaching, healing the sick and casting out demons. And not only does he do that, but now he sends out the twelve to do the same thing. He gives them authority over evil spirits. And so they go and they preach that people should repent. They cast out demons. They anoint people with oil and heal the sick. Well, as this is going on, even Herod, the king, the tetrarch, hears of it. He hears what people are saying. Oh, this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. This is Elijah who was to come. This is another one of the prophets like of old. Herod has his own opinion. Yeah, this is, this is John, whom I beheaded, raised from the dead. Like it says, like Mark relates, Herod had John put in prison. He had taken his brother's wife to be his own. That was against the law, and John said so. Now, Herod thought, Herod believed, Herod acknowledged John to be a righteous and holy man. And even if John would puzzle him, would perplex him, would challenge him, still he would hear him. But the woman, Herodias, she just hated John. And in the end, she got her way. There's the party, there's the dance, there's the foolish promise, there's that request. And John loses his head and his life. The girl and the mom take the head, the disciples take the body, and he's buried. And then at that point, Mark returns to the other story, where the apostles now come back to Jesus, where the disciples come back and report to Jesus what they had done, what they had said, what they had worked. Now, John is an important figure, an important character in the gospel. And so his death, especially a death like that, is worth mentioning in any case. But what Mark does by putting the death of John, who had preached, who had warned against sin, who had proclaimed repentance and forgiveness, who had baptized, what Mark does by dropping this story into the larger story about Jesus and his ministry, 
and the ministry of the apostles is to cast a shadow on what's happening. Already, Jesus has been opposed. Already, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. But here's the first shadow of the cross, the first indication that they're going to have their way. Later, Jesus himself would confirm that by predicting that he would suffer, he would be rejected, he would die, and on the third day rise again. And he confirms this by the way he talks about uh, John the Baptist. When the disciples asked Jesus about Elijah who was to come, what's he supposed to do? Why does he come first? Jesus says he's supposed to come to restore all things. But then Jesus asked, well, why is it said of the Son of Man that he has to suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you the truth, Jesus said, Elijah has already come, and they did with him as they pleased just as it was written of him. What happened to Elijah? What happened to Jesus? And what happens to Jesus is, well, what might happen to all who follow him. As Jesus himself said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. And so, this shadow... This shadow of death, the shadow of the cross, now, now comes into, into sight in the gospel. And sure enough, Jesus is rejected. He suffers many things. He's treated with contempt. He dies on the cross, but he rises again. God raises him from the dead and proves that he really is the Son of God. God raised him from the dead and proved that he really was the anointed one. He proved that he really had the Holy Spirit. He proved that his word is the word of truth and promise. It means that all who hear of him should repent and believe. It also means, then, that those who follow ought not be surprised by the same kind of trouble, difficulty, contempt, even persecution that John faced that Jesus faced, that the apostles faced. It applies, I suppose, with this text most directly to those who are called to the office of the ministry, those who are called and ordained to speak in the name of Jesus. That's a lot of you who are either aspiring to that office or in that. And so what, say, Paul said to Timothy applies to you. Preach the word. Be ready, be urgent, in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. But it also applies to all who follow. You might say it amounts to this. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Don't lose heart, no matter what happens. This kind of thing happened before. This kind of thing will happen again. Don't give up, don't compromise, don't lose heart. Even if it costs you your life, you'll get it back, just like Jesus did. Now, it also means we ought to be straight, we ought to be clear, we ought to be faithful in our message. Uh, last week, I was filling up with gasoline. 
when uh, a person in another pump waves at me. I, I'm not real good with names, but I look and I think, I don't know him. Then I think to myself, we've been having trouble recently. Something's wrong with my car. But it's neither of those things. He approaches, says hello, thrusts this tract at me, which I take. He says, I hope you read it. I'll be praying for you. Turns, gets in his truck, and drives off. Now, this is one of those times I wish I had a screen. This is not a new tract, but it is like I got it. It's been sat on. It's been wet and dried. It's a little torn. Oh, well. It says here on the front, you are someone special. And I said to myself, uh-oh. No other person has ever been born, nor will there ever be one who is just like you. Yes, God created you to be different from everyone else, and that's why you are special. No one else has your point of view, your personality, your character, or your passions. No one can parent your children, listen to your spouse, care for your parents or siblings or friends like you can. No one else has your ideas, your talents, your abilities, your creativeness, or your unique point of view. No, there is truly nobody else like you. So, this is why uh, God loves us. He made us this way. He reaches out to us, and, well, the short, long and short of it is, we ought to say the, we ought to pray, ask God to receive us, and then uh, send a letter to this organization saying that they've just, we've just prayed to accept Jesus. Uh, a lot could be said about this. This isn't, I suppose, an extreme example, but it's all right. You get it. Uh, what I want to bring out here, though, is there's no place in here for repentance. There's no place in here for the kingdom of God. There's no place, there's no story behind this that says that God is going to reign over all things through Jesus. He will judge the living and the dead. That all things will be made new through him. And that you're responsible to God through Jesus. There's no place for that. And sometimes there's no place for that in, I think, our evangelism, our preaching, our teaching, our catechesis, our apologetics. For a long time, the Christian church has lived without uh, having to worry too much about non-Christians. A lot of Lutheran theology, for instance, is developed over against Catholics, Reformed, and the like. And so, we emphasize that we are justified by grace through faith alone. That is, on account of Christ, his life and his suffering and death. That there is forgiveness of sins. That it comes to us by the word of God that it comes to us in baptism and the Holy Supper, that it brings about renewal, transformation, all of which are true. But a message, a story, an evangelism focused only around those things has little to say to a non-Christian, to a Buddhist, to a Taoist, to a Hindu, to a neo-pagan. 
it has, that kind of evangelism has little in common with the message of the New Testament. It has little in common with the preaching of Jesus or of John, of the apostles, of those who followed them. And one of the things that can happen, and it happens all too easily, is in our new situation where things are changing, where people are increasingly non-Christian or de-churched, we try to make the message appealing, attractive. That what we have in Jesus is something good for you. That what God has for you is something that you are lacking. That what you get through Jesus is an answer, a solution to the problems that we all have. Now certainly there is some truth to that. But taken only in that way, there's no room for repentance or the kingdom of God. There's no room for judgment or the new creation. There's no room for the Jesus that Mark brings out that Matthew did, that Luke did, that John did, that Peter did, that Paul did, that we should. John lost his head for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Jesus lost his life for the sake of the mission that was given to him. People like Peter and Paul endured great hardship for the sake of a message about this Jesus, the one who was crucified and was raised. But that's the one whom God sent to preach repentance, to establish his reign over all things. He's the one who not only was crucified, he's the one who not only died and suffered many things just like John did, but also who rose again and who will return. And he will return and engage and counter accost you. And so, turn. Look to, believe in, depend on Jesus. Turn. Believe the good news as proclaimed by the apostles and the evangelists. Turn. Look to, depend on, follow Jesus in all things. And no matter what it costs you in this life, in the age to come, there will be for you eternal life. You can count on that. We rise to pray.